Hey everybody, thanks for listening. Mark here from the Ronin Rescue Cast. Apologize for the little delay in getting these out. I know it's uh, been a couple of months. I've been away for the last little bit uh, between Grimp North America, taking the IMP program over in Belgium, and then Rescue Great Day, and then some holidays. Kind of been out of the country for about the last two and a half months. And we're going to have some interviews with some of the folks that were over there on those programs. Uh, you know, with Grimp North America and with the team lead from Rescue Great Day and with some of the folks that attended the IMP training at Campus Vesta in Belgium. But we're also going to be chatting with some of the local rescue folks, people that do search and rescue and people that are doing task force work and folks that are out there doing ski patrol and things like that, just to kind of round out, you know, it's the Ronin Rescue Cast. It has everything to do with rescue. So without any, any further ado, we've got Gavin Reed in Rescue Cast 76. He is a ski patroller with Whistler Blackcomb, or Blackcomb Ski Patrol. And we're going to be chatting about patrolling, rope rescue in the patrol world, some avian bombing, and we're going to finish it off with a little bit of talk about Hilo and use of helicopters in rescue. Well, welcome to the Ronin Rescue Cast. Today, all the way from the booming metropolis of Whistler, we have Gavin Reed. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Gavin. Hey, Mark. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's a it's a uh, busy busy time up here at Whistler. You know, lots lots going on, but uh, yeah, we'll 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 squeeze you in somehow. Now, uh, thanks very much for thanks very much for having me on, man. It's uh it's a it's a real privilege and uh, and a treat to uh, be able to chat with you, chat with a chat with somebody in the business. So today we're going to talk a bit about patrolling about some rope rescue in patrolling we're going to talk about bombing and avi and we're going to talk a bit about helicopter work and uh i guess before we get started and all that how about a quick who you are how you got into what you're doing right now and you know that kind of jazz yeah you bet um gavin reed uh originally from uh, north vancouver and then we hunted all the unicorns out of existence in north van and so i moved up here um been living up here sort of since 1990 through the summers and then moved up here full time uh in 1996 um started my patrol career cutting my teeth in uh 2000 2001 with the black home ski patrol as a uh as a rookie and uh never looked back i think i did uh i, I started doing my volley days in november of 2000 and uh quickly just started signing up for all of my days off I was, I was managing a ski shop at the time and man it did not take long i all three days off that i had in the week i was on the hill uh working with this incredible team called the uh, black home ski patrol or bsp as, uh, as we affectionately refer to it um and have been doing it winters and summers ever since uh, I'm also a member of the uh, Whistler Paid On Call Fire Department uh, since uh, about 2006, 2007. I'm a lieutenant with them, and I uh, help manage our technical rescue team um, out of Hall, hall 2. Um, I do a bunch of contract uh, contract uh, work, rope, uh, uh, SPRAT 3, IRATA 2, rope access technician, so working for various rope access companies, including Ronin Rescue. <laughs> uh little plug there and uh yeah and uh they always seem to get me on the most interesting of jobs so uh it's 
everything from rope access to confined space to uh, industrial firefighting, first aid. Uh, uh, yeah, a little bit of little bit of swift water. Um, I also work for a few companies uh, doing Class D work. Class D is a helicopter fixed line, a long line, so um, rescuer on the end end of the line. Um, and yeah, that I'm an instructor for that. I've been doing that for many years. That's that's something I'm I'm very proud of. Um, all of the things I'm very proud of, um, not only because they're really really interesting, but the but because of the people that I work with, the the teams that uh, that we have. Because uh, you know, without your team, you're 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 not much. Not much is going to happen. So that's a that's a little bit about me. Got uh, like I say, living up here. Um, you know, managing, uh, managing a teenage daughter and, and managing my life. Actually, she manages me. It's, it's that, that's more, that's a fair, more fair assumption. She takes good care of me. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. skier or snowboarder or both? Oh man. Oh, great question. Um, skier started skiing and then, um, oh man, sometime, sometime in the late eighties, early nineties, I, I took on snowboarding and I snowboarded exclusively for, for about five or six years so uh i have i have been uh have worked on the dark side let's see uh, one plank uh the whole time that i worked for this company called a little ski company called rosinal uh international ski company i was i was a snowboarder and uh yeah that, <laughs> that upset the euros a little bit but that's okay they I, I, did, I did good work for them i worked hard for them and that's all they really needed so uh but as soon as uh as soon as like they started putting some shape into skis and making skis skis wider and fatter man that was uh, that was uh, hard not to go back to skiing, and uh, been skiing ever since. And definitely, as a ski patroller, um, uh, professional ski patroller, doing avalanche control work, search and rescue, uh, you just working on skis is much easier. There are people uh, out there in industry that can manage it um, fairly well on um, on a snowboard, but if you're doing avalanche control and working in avalanche terrain, it's uh, you want to have releasable bindings if uh, if you ever get caught caught in a caught in your slough or caught in a slide or misfortune happens because uh, the mountains and uh, Mother Nature and the universe uh, they, they they don't care whether you're a skier or a snowboarder but uh, you want to make yourself sur as survivable as possible. So what's your current ski setup then for all the ski geeks that are <laughs> Oh yeah, okay. Well, um, I guess here comes a big plug for vocal. Uh, as my uh, my buddy is, uh, um, you know, little entwined with vocal, but uh, I've I've had you know my my go to ski is uh, the vocal mantra, and I've got uh, a set of shifts on one, and then a set of just uh, regular um, regular, you know, step in alpine bindings on another. Got a pair of rock skis. Um, what else do I have? Oh, I got a pair of vocal. Uh, uh, 10108s uh, that I use for my avalanche control skis. Uh, they're a little bit, little bit wider. And they have shifts on them as well. So, uh, you know, depending on what you, you're gonna, you, you think you might find yourself doing, it's nice to have that, uh, that sort of four by four option. You want to be able to go down, go up, go sideways. So, sometimes in the day, you're, you're off in the rhubarb and you're trucking around, and um, instead of having to go back to your locker up in the alpine. You know, if you can just throw in a set of skins and a bit of a uh, bit of search and rescue gear, uh, you can you can mobilize quickly and you can get onto the task at hand. So um, that's that's kind of what I run. 
Okay. Now, I remember we were talking before online. I mean, I was skiing Blackcomb back in the days before it was Whistler Blackcomb. It was just Blackcomb. And, yeah. You know, things have changed up there. We were just chatting about, you know, using the facilities in the arcade, which probably doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. Um, you know, ski bombing and living around. But uh, how has ski patrolling changed over those years? Uh, awesome. Awesome question. It, you know, the, the ski patrol culture is still alive and alive and well. Um, it's such a tight team, Mark. Like, you know, um, I, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, we've had members like ski patrol members over the last 20, 30 years, um, you know, that were ski bums, you know, one guy, you know, uh, ski patroller, skis out of bounds, you know, it was his own fault, breaks his neck, has a few near death experiences, goes on to be a doctor and anesthetist. And he's like the best in the business. And he still comes back to, to mentor on Blackcomb and help with our doctor's program. Um, you, you know, we've got guys from like police ERT teams that, that used to be black home ski patrollers and they went on to be, um, you, you know, uh, you know, experts in their field in, in, in ERT, like say doctors, uh, nurse practitioners, uh, helicopter pilots, God, black home helicopters. It's great. We'll talk about heli bombing later, but, it's pretty awesome when you're up flying around in a helicopter, black home helicopters. And, you know, there's, they have two pilots that used to be patrollers, you know, they could basically do it by themselves. Um, so that the, the culture is alive and well, uh, even to this day when, you know, people have done that job and they moved on to something else, it's, it's still just such a, a special bond. And they, they talk about it as some of their best times in their life. Um, with with that team the the job itself um has has grown um you know back back in the day even before my time um you know there were fewer patrollers the terrain was still just as gnarly um it wasn't as big i mean you didn't have access to black home glacier you know uh, there was no glacier express chair uh, i don't know i don't know if you remember uh the the t-bar that went up seven yep. seven and then yeah. you, used come, you used to cut around the back. And if it was uh, a crappy year, you were walking the bottom end of it. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a big walk. Right. But yeah, like. Sorry, so, I never had a balance speeds. Don't do that, kids. <laughs> yeah. 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 Read the signs. Read the signs. This is not the mall. Uh, so many. Yeah. We can. That's, that's, a, that's a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> um, but uh, how, how has it changed? Like the, the, um, the ski patrol culture, you know, I would say is very much there. Um, you know, we're. We, we become limited by some of the things that, that used to be done that, that, that are allowed to be done now, just simply through uh, regulations, OH&S, work safe and things like that. But it is keeping the workers safer. It is, you know, it's, um, it's a tremendously varied job. So in the beginning, fewer patrollers, same amount of terrain, fewer guests. Now we have, you know, more terrain, more guests. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the top resorts, you know, in the world, whether, you know, Whistler Blackcomb, right. And it just, it, it draws people, people of all walks of life. Right. Um, 
people who are fantastic in the mountains, people who want to get fantastic in the mountains, people who have never been in the mountains before, people who ski 100 days a year, people who ski two days a year. Uh, but there's a lot of them. You know, there's a lot of them. And so you need, you need uh, a bigger team. And with a bigger team, bigger team dynamics, training up our, our new people, um, making sure that they're, they're doing things, you know, confidently and competently, um, you know, huge first aid component to it. I always, I, I jokingly say, but I don't jokingly say, if you got to get hurt anywhere in the sea to sky corridor, you should probably get hurt or messed up on Whistler or Blackcomb. Because as soon as that call comes in, you're going to get one or two first responders with a, a, a boatload of first aid experience in trauma and medicine. And then you're going to have probably uh, somebody with a PCP background, a paramedic background. Then you're going to have a doctor or two. You know, that we do have now. So I lost so, you there. You said so a doctor tools, or two and then... Yeah, doc, a doctor or two. And so, you know, that's something that they didn't have back in the day, but we do now. So just like the, the tools in the toolbox, there's, there's more to choose from and, um, and everybody knows how to use them very well. So that's from a first aid response, you know, response. Then there's, you know, um, the mitigation aspect of it, just going out and doing trail checks and being out there and just making sure the mountain's safe before we open. And, you know, that's avalanche control. So there's a huge proactive piece to, uh, to patrolling, um, which has always been there. Uh, we just have to do more of it now um, to, keep, to keep the public safe because um, they really don't know, right? It's, uh, we always say that, oh, they should know better. Well, no, we should know better that they don't know better. So we need to, do, we need to step up our job even more on a day-to-day -day basis. And our, our patrollers do that. The, 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 uh, our brothers and sisters over on Whistler and, and our team over on Blackcomb, they, they kill it every single day. They're not, sorry, they're not killing people. They're killing their job. They're crushing. So uh, every single day they go out there and, and they, as, uh, as my friend Darlene says, you just give till it hurts. Right on. Now, yeah. one of the things, I mean, obviously we do a lot of rope rescue with Ronan and yeah. a lot of people listen to these podcasts, listen to the rope rescue part of it. What sort of rope rescue pieces does Ski Patrol now have in it? Or has it always been there and just really not as noticed much? Uh, yeah, it's just not noticed as much. The, the level of expertise has, has always been there. Um, yeah, whether, you know, it, it, brings, it brings certain people to the table. So in the, pa in the past, it was more of an alpinist style rescue. Um, and then in the last 25 years, adopting um, many different pieces of the puzzle. So we have a unique situation up, you know, up in the mountains here. It's, if you look at all the sort of disciplines, you know, we'll say in, in rope rescue, you know, we've got, um, well, you know, for you and I in the fire department, we've got NFPA and then that's one field and stream. And then we have sort of Sprat IRATA an industrial sort of uh, take on things. Then we have, uh, EMBC or search and rescue, more of a, you know, a terrestrial backcountry rescue. There's uh, ACMG, you know, guides, you know, they're basically out there rescuing people out of crevasses with dental floss and, and, and uh, you know, paper clips. Um, 
you know, what else, what else we got out there, but they're all sort of overseen by, you know, the laws of physics and, uh, and work safe. But we look at, we look at our mountains up here and, and we look at what we have, you know, what are our problems and, and what, what tools do we have? So, you know, we obviously have terrestrial rescue. We have people that get cliffed out, they ski too far and we have to mount uh, some sort of ground type rescue. And, and that would be more like, an FPA fire department or, uh, you know, EMBC, like a SAR type rescue where, you know, you're, you're putting together um, some sort of either pick off single rope rescue or, or two rope rescue. We also have industrial, we have tons of industrial, right? We've got all these lifts all over the, all over the hill, crisscrossing the hills. And we have to look at that because that's a, that's a known fixed problem. That's more of an industrial rescue. So we'll, we'll employ more sprata rata rope access techniques. Um, but all of, all of our, all of our gear, our tools in the toolbox, uh, are very, um, they're not one dimensional. We can, we can, we can plug and play with, with a lot of that stuff. So, um, back in the day, it was all, you know, dedicated main, dedicated belay, you know, brake bar racks and, you know, tandem prussic belays. And so we were doing that for a number of years, um, and, and pretty successfully, we don't do too many uh, rescues, uh, two rope rescues uh, in the past, but it seems like it's coming on more and more, you know, people with a strong sense of adventure, but maybe some uh, enthusiastic decision-making uh, get themselves into the, into the, into the, the poo as it were. So what we're using, what we're using now is we've evolved from that and we're, we're definitely TTRS to intention rope system or, or DC TTRS. Um, so we're using, um, you know, what we have, we, we started out with MPDs. Uh, so we've got a couple of MPDs. Those are descent control devices. We're using maestros. Uh, I'd love to see some, some clutches in there. We've got IDs, um, you know, pulleys. So we're, we're using a, a, a TTRS type system. That's, that's what we're basing our rescue system off of. And then flavoring to taste, depending on what it is, what it is that's really needed in that rescue. Okay. If it go, yeah, if it's a rope, if it's a um, rope access uh, type rescue in, a, in on a lift or something like that, then we're busting out our lift evacuation kit, which is is largely rope access based. No, I was just gonna say there's two ones I kind of want to dig down on, just so that yeah. I don't think a lot of people in fire or in other disciplines kind of realize the number of guests that you can end up with having to rest <laughs> you off of a chairlift should it go bad. And I yeah. know you've done some work with us over the years and training yeah. some people here and there. And it really opened my eyes. And um, you just kind of want to talk about like, if a lift breaks down, you got to start pulling people off. Like what are the numbers we're talking about and what's that look like? Well, you know, if you, you know, we we're always sort of, we always sort of want to look at worst case scenario. Because once we've once we've uh, assessed what we think worst case scenario is, it's no longer worst case scenario. It's just a scenario. Worst case scenario is the stuff that we haven't talked about. Um, we've done a few uh, lift evacuations, um, not because anybody was in tremendous peril, but it wasn't going to get started. So the whole rollout of a lift evacuation is like our maintenance. Our maintenance crews are awesome. They they like the lift maintenance, electrical maintenance guys you know, again, they're just crushing it every day, keeping, keeping these aerial tramways safe and moving. 
but in the event it does go down, it's sort of weather dependent. Like, you know, what, what are the temps, you know, uh, based on, you know, how long somebody can comfortably or uncomfortably be on a lift, you know, what sort of time of day, you know, we're always fighting the clock. We're always, we're always up against daylight. Um, but you, in, in theory, you could, you could have hundreds of people, um, on a, on a given lift. Um, and so we have dozens of teams just on one mountain alone, uh, ready to deploy. And every, you know, we, we spend a ton of time at the beginning of the season doing, uh, initial certification for our new people and recertification for our, uh, returning patrollers. And then like, uh, you know, an advanced, advanced scenario sort of, um, program for our more senior and, and experienced people. And that's just on one mountain. If any lift ever goes down or we think is going to be problematic and we're mobilizing for a, an evac, our, our brothers and sisters over on Whistler, they're, they're on their way. Like you don't even have to ask. It's a, it's a, you know, almost a seamless sort of request for help. And we do that in any sort of rescue situation. If we didn't have the, uh, the personnel to do some sort of rescue, um, you know, helicopter rescue, like a HETS rescue or um, a twin tension rope system, you know, we got guys like Sean Baudouin, Martin, Martin Buchheim over on Whistler, they're, they're coming and that's, that's pretty good comfort. So worst case scenario, we could have hundreds of people out there and it is going to take a while, you know, we're going to roll down, we're going to herald the line, start assessing um, what our priorities are, you know, where, where's that, where's that quad quad pack of, of uh, 10 year olds on the chair or where are those elderly people or, you know, uh, so we, we will, we'll pick our priorities and deploy as necessary. And it's, uh, it's something that's well orchestrated and, and practiced a, a ton, both winters and summers, because we'll do that for the bike park as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's kind of new to a lot of people when they sit there and think, hang on, we're going to triage hundreds of people four at a time on chair lists, figure out who the most vulnerable is and then yeah. start rescuing them. I mean, that, that's yeah. not a easier, simple task. No, no. I mean, you know, you know better than anybody what it's like to try and convince somebody that they've gone from having the best day of their life to the, you know, uh, a worst day of their life. And now you're, you know, they're totally freaked out. And now you've got to try to convince, convince them to do something that looks, even though you've done it, it's, it's normal business as usual for you you know, you're like, you, you want me to do what you're going to, you're going to put me in a harness or you're going to put me in a chair and you're going to lower me to the ground. It's, um, it's, you, you gotta be a bit of a, you gotta be a bit of a, a rescue salesman, you know, and, uh, and, and be enthusiastic about it. Um, cause you will get a lot of pushback, but, um, uh, eventually everybody comes around every, you know, that we come up against that in training all the time. Oh, what if you got somebody who doesn't want to do this, doesn't want to do that? Like, well, they're going to want to because they've been there for a while and they, they really want out of their situation. You just have to explain to them that like the situation that you're going to put them into now that you're there as a, a rescue professional is going to be far better than the one that they're in now. Right on. And then the other one I'm curious to chat about for people that don't know Whistler Blackcomb in like a minute or less, explain that big cable thing that's going between those two mountains there, how long, uh, and how high that is and what kind oh. of rescue planning's on that? Oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so that's, that's the peak to peak. 
So that is a uh, aerial tramway with gondola cars uh, that uh, rolls back and forth between Blackcomb and Whistler. It's uh, ooh, I, I should know. It's about it's about four and a half kilometers long. Uh, I want to say it's, you know in the belly of it, it's still uh, 300, 400 meters above the valley floor there. So the, uh, the thing with that is, is like um, you've, you've got, so if, if in the unfortunate circumstance that, that uh, breaks down for some reason, there's a, actually kind of an elaborate winch system between the, the two middle towers. And um, there's a track, almost like a tow truck that goes out on it, hooks into the cars, the lift, uh, lift maintenance and the lift evacuation team detach the brake system and basically pull it all the way back to the nearest tower where our team will uh, start evacuating people to the ground. So lowering them to the ground. So, you know, between, between the two tower, the two lowest towers back to the mountain, it's uh, like a regular lift evacuation. And in the, what we call the saddle in the, you know, in the middle there, we'll go out, retrieve the cars, uh, leave the people in. Uh, we've also done some, I, 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 and I will send you this cause you'll love this Mark. Uh, we have we have done um, some well not trial runs we we actually demonstrated quite uh, quite well black home helicopters uh, my partner um, Brian Fishbook Sean Baudouin uh, Pat Bougie there was a, a number of people uh, involved in this and we did um, helicopter evac out of the gondola cars from the middle of the span so uh, technician I'd fly in um, to the to the car door, tell everyone to get back, go up to the, uh, the grip assembly, unlock the door, come back down, open the door, come in, secure myself inside the cabin, send the, uh, the HETS uh, class E line away, uh, and then start putting people into uh, evac harnesses and then uh, clip them all together and the line would come back in and um, out they go uh, four at a time out, in, out into the wild blue yonder. And it was tremendously successful uh we had some of our volunteer patrollers acting as guests and um it, it's got to be well orchestrated just like any good rescue it's got to be you never do something for the first time for the first time but uh <laughs> yeah it's just uh and that's that's really um you know in europe that's pretty commonplace in other places in the world a uh, bit of bit of pushback here but once people saw oh it isn't just some guy tied to the bottom of a helicopter yeah there's a little bit more to it that's uh yeah yeah i'll send i'll send you i'll send you some i'll send you some video and uh you'll be like yeah okay i see what you're, I, I see what's going on here cool um the other side of patrolling i wanted to chat about was bombing the abbey side now you mm. mentioned a little bit and maybe people didn't quite pick it up that you're responsible to go and make sure the terrain is I'm using safe, and if you could see me, see yeah. what air quotes going because yeah. it's an inherently <laughs> dangerous task, even inbound. Yeah. But yeah, you go out and you want to make sure the terrain is safe for inbound slides and things like that. So let's you know go off with that one a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I'll I'll, I'll start with uh, people ask me what what my job is like, and uh, and I'll I'll say, well, the scenery is awesome, the people are nice, and they let me blow things up. I think everybody would be way more even keeled if they got to blow something up in a constructive manner, constructive matter. That's, that's the air quotes there. So um, that's another one of my jobs in patrol is uh, 
as an avalanche technician, and I also help uh, monitor our explosives control uh, regulatory. So it's something that needs to be checked and rechecked every day. But uh, avalanche control, uh, essentially before the public get up or into our terrain, our forecasters and our avalanche technicians will assess, you know, the weather from before that, you know, do, do profiles and, you know, what is, what is safe terrain and what is not safe terrain. Uh, meaning, you know, uh, is there an, is there an, an avalanche problem? Is there, is there a hazard? And if there's a hazard, what's, what's the likely outcome? And, uh, you know, everybody thinks it's art, but there's just a tremendous amount of science that goes into that. And uh, the men and women, uh, Whistler Blackcomb, our, our forecasters, our weather people, you know, when we're out digging pits, there's, there's a lot of science going on there. So we'll go out and, or we'll, we'll gather that data. And at uh, the, you know, we're, we're out the door at uh, 6 a.m., headed up the mountain um, before anybody's, you know, up and, up and going. And uh, we'll go assess our avalanche problem. And then if, if needed, we'll, um, we'll deploy some explosives into our, into our known start zones. And we could use anywhere, you know, we're, we're using generally hand charges. So there's, you know, you can call it the Wiley Coyote stick of dynamite, but it's, uh, it's a hand charge. It's, it's actually quite safe. Every, it's just a tool. Everything is safe as long as you use it properly and you follow the rules. Um, and we'll deploy anywhere from sort of like, 20 to 120 of those depending on the day because we need to control you know all of uh you know jc bull chainsaw the trade what we call the trade routes cougar secret pakalolo you know black home glacier you know over spanky's ladder it takes it takes a bit of it takes a bit of doing you know we can be doing avalanche control from 6 a.m till sometimes 1 a.m uh and the same with uh, same with the team over on whistler so we're, we're throwing hand charges. Um, yeah, it's a one kilogram charge. Um, we're also deploying them via what we call avalanchers, which is, um, it's a projectile. So you can think of it like a, like a gun, except it's a nitrogen powered gun. So nitrogen being an inert gas, it's basically a big blow gun. So we'll put uh, special charges into the barrel of this thing. Uh, pressurize it up with nitrogen and, and fire them into targets. Uh, it's, uh, that's, a, that's an effective way of doing it. We also have bomb trams, which are like cable, cable trams that we will put, uh, put bombs on and string them across known areas so that we don't have to enter, uh, enter a start zone. And then we get an air blast and, and usually gets a really nice result. My, uh, my favorite deployment method is uh, definitely when we have the weather uh, is um, we will load up whatever, uh, whatever we feel is necessary into a helicopter and we'll do helicopter deployment. And yeah, I'm not gonna lie to you, it's, it's a ton of fun. It's a ton of work, but what's awesome is we can get terrain open fast. So the sooner, sooner we can make the terrain safe, uh, you know, uh, we go out and we hunt the avalanches, we, we want the avalanches to come down on our terms, not mother nature's terms. So we're going to give it a little help. Uh, so we'll load up a bunch of, bunch of stick into the machine and three of us will go up. We've got a, a timer, a prepper and a bombardier and a pilot. So I guess there's four. It's good to have the pilot and uh, we'll fly around. We'll hit those start zones. It's much faster and actually much safer than being uh, on the ground at times. Um, Cause uh, you're not actually in a start zone. So, and 
it's usually a pretty nice day. It's usually a pretty good day when, uh, when you get to go heli bombing, but, uh, yeah. That's awesome. That sounds like a yeah. ton of fun. I mean, that part of the job, obviously. It, it, it is. I, 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 another sort of saying I've adopted is, you know, all of this stuff is, is super serious business. And if it's done wrong, yeah, there's consequences, but that's like any, any tool that we use in life. If you use, if you use a hammer badly, it's going to hurt. Um, you know, that's uh, but yeah, these are, I call them little kid jobs with adult responsibilities. I mean, come on, seriously, who doesn't want to drive a fire truck? I know you said you don't want to anymore, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you get in your hands, you get in your hands on the ropes and the explosives, you're ski cutting, you're doing critical first aid, you're working with a doctor, you're, uh, you know, you're helping intubate a critically injured patient on the hill. Then you're loading them into a, into a helicopter for a medevac and your friend, you know, your friend who's the paramedic and the doctor are flying them down. And then you, you hear of like, you know, the good outcome weeks, weeks later and people at VGH saying, yeah, wow, if it wasn't for their initial care, you know, this poor fellow might not have made it or man, some of the best gratitude you can, you can have as a ski patroller is we usually finish our avalanche control route, like Spanky's ladder is the last thing that we open. So we'll all wind up down at uh, like Swamp Thing. So all the avalanche teams and we're just getting ready to head out, but we've already cracked it. We call it cracking it or giving, giving clearance. And, you know, you just see people pouring into these bowls and you start skiing down the rescue road and people are whipping by you because they're, they're just dying to get their next lap. And it's just like, thanks, man. That's awesome. Wicked day. Thanks so much for your hard work. And it's just like, you know, Gratitude goes, goes such a long ways in, uh, in the first responder business or ski patrol or anything like you get, you get paid for your job for sure. And it's a fun job, but man, when you're appreciated and appreciated by the people like that, it really goes, it goes, goes a long ways. It's huge. Makes you want to come back for your 22nd season. <laughs> Is that what you're at? 22nd season now? Yeah. 20, 20, 22 years. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we're going to change gears. A little, I mean, not a, a drastically, yeah. but you're also a CDFL or Class D, and I'll let you yeah. talk about that in a second for our American viewer or listeners, sure. or our European listeners that may call that a bit different. You're an instructor with that. Yeah. Uh, I know you've taught my SAR team and whatnot, and yeah, just a little bit of talk about what it is, what it does, and then I'd like to chat with you a little bit about some flooding that you responded to a few years back. Oh yeah, 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 sure. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a, a class D uh, fixed line instructor. So class D is uh, helicopter long line rescue. That's how I sort of explain it to, uh, you know, the people on the street. It's like, yeah, I, I'm the guy on the bottom of the line and it's attached to a helicopter. Um, so for other people, so there's class D, that's what's referred to in, in Canada. Uh, uh, in the States, it's fixed line or short haul. I believe it's referred to that in, um, in Europe as well. Um, you also, in, you know, in BC and Canada, you'll hear it referred to as HETS, H-E-T-S, Helicopter External Transportation System, or BOOST. <clears throat> Those are both brand names of products. So HETS is, uh, is an Emergeco uh, product, Emergeco uh, Aeronautics product. It's been around for a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, a very safe, effective tool in the toolbox for um, rescuing, you know, difficult access or just accessing difficult situations. So is it, is it a rescue tool? Yes. 
is it an but it's an access tool first it gets you it gets you to and from the problem um so that attaches to a helicopter with a specifically trained pilot uh with a specifically trained technician on the end of the line um a bunch of redundant uh, safety systems and you can access you know if you've got the pilot and the weather you can access so many things it, it like i say i refer to it as a difficult access technique is it the be-all end-all of everything no there is no be-all end-all of anything because um every plan a has to have a plan b and a plan c so when we're spooling up for a, a class d or a hetz mission long line mission uh, i want to know that we've already got plan b in the can ready to go we've got our ground team you know rolling with our twin tension rope system uh, or we have a you know we, we're, we're prepping for uh, a protracted uh, sort of ground ground rescue because uh, things happen you know and the same thing goes for that uh, protracted ground rescue that might already be facilitated or spooling up you know you want to have your HETS team on standby and uh, just basically whoever can do the job safest and quickest for the end user the end user being the person that you're you're helping out that's that's the right tool but uh this is uh again you see it um in so many um so many places uh you see it in europe all the time uh it's, it's it came online in in canada in the uh in the early 80s uh with parks canada uh and actually some guys some guys locally uh, you know the guys from parks canada george Zalahi, uh bruce brink um you know, they were, they were all instrumental in bringing this tool to Canada and, uh, and it really sort of growing up through its adolescence to, to what it is now. Now, the, the, next, the next thing that's, that's in Canada, it's not super new, but is, uh, is hoist. So that's a, a mechanical hoist uh, or winch system that lowers people in and out of the helicopter down to those difficult places. It's uh, very widely used in the States, very widely used in Europe. Uh, and, and coming on board in Canada. It's expensive for the, the helicopter companies to have, but uh, just another uh, rescue tool for, for us to uh, utilize. Um, to cut in on you there, my understanding is that uh, EMBC is looking at the definition of a CDFL technician, and it's going to include hoist work. So if you yeah. only do hoist, You'll have to learn long line as well. And if you only do long line, you'll have to learn hoist. Yeah. Well, so EMBC, you know, pretty, you know, um, unique yet wide, wide sweeping organization. Uh, I, I think that's okay. Uh, and I don't think that'll be a, a difficult transition for, for any um, current technicians or new technicians coming up. You know, being on the end of the line means, you, you know, you have to have the same mentality, whether it's a hoist or whether it's a fixed line. Um, I remember when I started, you know, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the old school guys, it's like, oh, you're just a dope on a rope, meaning you're, you have no control over your situation. I don't subscribe to that at all. You need to be switched on head on a swivel. You're part of the essential crew, meaning you're, you're part of, you're part of the team. And my job is to make the pilot's job easier or the hoist operator's job easier by giving them good communication being a, a skilled practitioner, you know, being able to manage manage the situations as they present themselves, 
Uh, why, how do we manage those situations? Because we train and we train a lot. Um, you know, there's that old paradigm. It's, uh, uh, you know, low frequency, um, you know, high risk or high risk, low frequency. Um, if you don't do something a lot, you should train a lot. But we're starting to do this more and more. So we should be very good at the basics um, so that we can build on to our more complex rescues, just like anything we do in technical rescue. Uh, you gotta, you gotta definitely walk and walk confidently before you start running. Otherwise you won't realize that your shoelaces are untied. Yeah. I mean, our brothers and sisters to the South will understand this, but it became apparent when I was over doing, um, the IMP program in Belgium and you're chatting with the guys over beers and stuff at the end of the day. And the idea of what we call here crown land doesn't really exist. Like in Belgium, yeah. at least everything's owned. And so crown yeah. land for us is land that's owned by the government. Like no one has stake in it. Like farmers may or ranchers more likely may ranch it and whatnot, but it's government owned land. And that's where a lot of these SAR teams use this particular asset in, you know, Canada, for instance, because we're, I mean, my drive, as most people have listened to this podcast, knows a good 400 kilometers. So about three miles for you Americans. Um, back and <laughs> forth. And there's sections in there that are a hundred kilometers where it's just nothing but bush. And yeah. so to go and try to do ground extrications of people in there, like you're talking hours upon hours. Like when we've been turned down for helicopter work, five, six hour infills to yeah. get the patient is not unheard of i know and that's you know where a lot of this comes from for the you know some of the listeners that don't know the geography of bc that well <laughs> yeah well you know that's that's so true mark like just just that uh you know ground-based versus like you know there's that whole yeah you got to work smarter not harder well we need to work smart and hard um but you know a good good example is is like you know uh you know, public is out hiking and they break their ankle on a scree slope, you know, loose shaley scree slope. And it's only, you know, it's only 200 yards to the trailhead, but now you got to walk four or six rescuers across 200 feet of scree to get a broken ankle. What's the chances of injuring a rescuer in that? It's actually pretty good. Whereas you could, you know, I could, you know, you know, get picked up from a safe location, go to the problem, pick this person up and move them through that hazardous terrain with, without any problem at all. And no, no risk to, you know, more collateral damage uh, to anybody. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the smart way to do that. Or, you know, how, you know, you're, you're a SAR guy, like, you know, you're smashing through a bunch of like jail bar slash alder or West coast timber, um, you know, you need a team, you need a team of 10 to affect a rescue or with, you know, class D, you know, um, long line rescue, you need a team of team of four or five, uh, you know, to go in and do that same rescue. And none of them are, you know, the, the uh, amount of time over the exposure uh, is much less. So it's, it's a smarter way. It's a smarter way of doing things. Not the only way, but I, I believe that it is a smarter way. Not to get too much in the details because it's a yeah. very recent call. Um, same sort of idea. We go in to pull an individual out and I won't get into medical or anything else about that. Um, but as we're there, 
see a, a cop mountie walking down the trail and it's like oh man <laughs> wow how long have you been walking he goes it's taken me four kilometers of walking to get here that's the closest oh god he could get his four-wheel drive vehicle and if you know the way mounties drive i mean they'll yeah. drive those things off a cliff if they can get away with it they like, will yeah he that would have been a full stop <laughs> i can't get my cruiser any closer and still had to walk 4k to get to where we were wow so, um oh yeah sorry you were you were talking about uh talking about your rescue there yeah that's that's good enough for that um, um you were on, talking, on the on the rcmp on the rcmp side of things or or the policing side of things so we use it as a a, a difficult uh, or difficult access tool we're always talking rescue but um uh i had the fortunate uh the fortune of, of working with the RCMP a number of years ago uh, to train their ERT teams up in class D. Um, and, uh, you know, originally it was, you know, for their, for their rescue, you know, that's, you know, these guys are doing high hazard work and they need, you know, if it goes bad, they're going to need immediate extraction. So we train their team up uh, for, for class D in all sorts of conditions. So not just basic, uh, you know, in and out of sort of class three terrain, but um, putting them in and off of structures, putting them in and off of gondola towers, inserting them into trees, they secure themselves into trees and, and, and then extract from it. Or, uh, you know, they get a line fouled and they're, they're repelling off the line. So uh, escape off the line or even uh, extending the long line. Like uh, it, that was one of my, that was, that was probably my second most favorite uh, training um, training group. Just uh, my, my dad's ex-RCMP and I got a lot of friends who are in law enforcement. So it was a real um, privilege to be able to work with, uh, with that group. So uh, yeah, if you think those guys can't get it wrong around, you're sure wrong. I know you've worked with lots of those guys. So yeah, getting into trees. I'd like to thank Ian for my treeing on the weekend. If you ever, <laughs> <laughs> oh, did, did you, you got the fresh smell, fresh scent of pine on you? Uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, <laughs> you were deployed with uh, Class D on a project for flooding in one of the communities across Canada. You just want to talk yeah. about that really quick? Yeah, that was that was another. So that was probably my 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 proudest sort of instruction we were uh tasked god i'm trying to remember when the big floods out in manitoba were like 11 years year. ago <laughs> yeah yeah exactly every year um but they the year before they had had some extreme flooding they were expecting it again so we were uh we were tasked with going out and we had uh oof, we had 12 people from winnipeg fire winnipeg fire department and 12 from the office of the fire commission and we trained them up in class d in the flood environment so it was uh mid to late march out in uh lac de bonne uh working with uh paul gibson out in provincial helicopters awesome awesome dude so funny um but uh yeah so wicked bitterly cold so working in the not only the flood but the snow and the ice some swift water and right from right from the start, just building a team that, you know, a uh, multi-agency team that could deploy at sort of a moment's notice to, to rescue flood victims. I mean, uh, these are just regular people going about their lives and Mother Nature decides to really hand them a, uh, a crap sandwich. And um, 
sometimes sometimes there isn't time to get out you know you know you know the the swift water and the flood world so they decided that that was a tool that they needed and we went out we spent uh almost three weeks out there working with them and uh just being able to be out there on standby with them so not only training them but being out there on standby with them was you know some of the most fulfilling work you just you know you're, you're helping regular people who who really need your expertise and uh then when i heard i, I had left and I heard that they had uh, affected a few rescues. That was a very proud moment for me um, as an instructor, um, thinking that uh, I might have had uh, something something to do with that. You know, uh, everybody. It was a safe mission, and it was an effective mission. And uh, yeah, I was very I was very proud of that team. Really quickly, just one takeaway about working around helicopters in Class D and water. Like, what's a hazard well, mitigation technique for some of the listeners on this? Yeah train it you you need to work you need to work as a team the pilot needs to be um ultra ultra comfortable in working that environment you need to be ultra comfortable in working in that environment um you know because when when they're when they're flying normally the ground doesn't move when they're referencing off of a river or or a lake there's there's no reference for them so communication so the the quick takeaway is uh train it and and train it uh train it a lot Right on. Um, we've been at it. Oh, we're good 45, 50 minutes. That's usually where we like yeah. to keep these. Um, is there anything else you want to throw in at all? I mean, we don't have to keep it shorter. We can always oh. push along, but uh, is yeah. there anything else you want to add? Uh, you, you know, I've, uh, you know, you, you've known me for a bunch of years, Mark. <laughs> you know, this, this sort of work takes you, takes you everywhere and, and you never know, you know, what, what's coming up next you know the you know i like i like to say the only constant is i know that something's going to happen i just don't know what's going to happen um always you know stupid boy scout motto but always be prepared over you know what did what do you what did you used to say overkill is underrated you know make sure that you have your stuff be don't be a if you're going to be a, a rescue nerd be a be a super rescue nerd right um i, I see a lot of people go from uh, confident to cocky. And I told you that about my, uh, my, my chem 11 teacher. I was, I was, you know, I was kind of getting like 50% in the chem 11 course a, a hundred years ago. And then I got an A on a test and I was all full of myself. And, uh, Mr. Kenna at the time, he's like, Gav, don't let confidence transition into cocky. Just get through this. So in everything that we do, practice more than you need, practice more than you think you should and uh get get good at the basics a good practitioner will make a good instructor and a good instructor will make a great practitioner because they're always focusing on the basics and never willing they know that they don't need to cut the corners because they they can operate uh effectively and efficiently that brings me to a couple other quick questions then um Ski patrollers, some of them carry bailout kits if they're stuck on a lift when it goes down. Is that something you prescribe to or not? Uh, you know, the political answer is no, of course not. Uh, yeah, I, I, I rock around with uh, I rock around with 60 meters of sea toms, uh, <laughs> as, as, as you, have you seen, because, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm one of our lift evacuation specialists and it just wouldn't do so well for me to be stuck on a lift. Um, you know, shit just happens no matter how good the maintenance is or, or, or what happens, uh, things happen and you always, you always want, 
out. So yeah, a few of our, a few of our people are, are rocking around with um, bailout kits. Um, you know, I, I have mine. Um, again, it's kind of overkill, but when I was in China uh, a couple of years ago on their lift system, you know, it's a new lift system and they have some gnarly terrain and um, you know, 30 meters wasn't going to cut it. 60 meters is what I needed. And, you know, my confidence in anybody coming to get me uh, was a little bit low, we'll say. So got to be able to take care of yourself. You know, a great, uh, a, a great, we'll say bailout alternative. It takes up no space. Carry around like a hundred feet of 550 paracord. And, and why that is in, in a carabiner, why that is, is when, you know, if I'm a lift evacuation team and one of my guys or girls has 550, they can lower it down. I can tie the system on, haul it up, and we can get them off the chair right away. Like I can go right to them. Um, great little bit of kit to have in your pack for anything. Piece of webbing and 550 paracord. The good stuff. I'm rocking the firefly now for treeing in that hat. Right. Nice. Nice. I want to check that out. Yeah, I've got yeah, one that's... still here, but uh, yeah, um, Abby cool. work. Let, yeah. let, my last question, Abby work. You've done Abby yeah. work for a long time. Yeah. Uh, does it still scare you? Does it like, I mean, looking at it yeah. and I guess just before you answer, just for the European listener, I mean, they're used to a ton of Abby forecasting over in Europe. Yeah. I believe you could take the Alps and probably put them in the Monashies, which is like, like a piece of our Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And you have more Abbey forecasting in the Alps than we have in British Columbia in its entirety. Yeah. And, and, and they've been doing it for hundreds of years. You know, they've been, they've been looking at, they've been looking at the snow since, you know, snow was invented basically. Uh, yeah. I mean, Canada is a big place. Like everything is big. If you grew up here, you're like, eh, you know, you don't really have an appreciation for it. Uh, over in Europe, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's far more compact and dense, you know, you, you know, you can, you can literally uh, go from hut to hut to hut to resort, to resort, to resort, which is something I'd like to do in the future. Um, your, your original question, do you know, am, am I still scared? I have a tremendous respect for uh, working in avalanche terrain. Um, I've been, I've been caught three times. Um, two and a half times really. Um, and, uh, it was all my fault. I, I know what I did wrong. It wasn't like, Oh, that was unavoidable. Um, you know, things, you know, like we say, gear rarely fails. People fail all the time. Your decision-making in the mountains has to be critical. Um, and the first time was, uh, you know, I transitioned from, you know, not cocky, but, you know, from confident to cocky, but from confident to, I, I thought the job was done. We'd done the hard part. And, uh, you know, before I know it, and we even were heading right for this zone and both me and my partner, who is very experienced, is a very good friend of mine, Mario Chartrand, giant French Canadian dude. And uh, we're like, I bet you it cracks at that rib. And we're traversing towards this rib over by Sumi. I'm like, yeah, I bet you it goes there. Yeah, probably, probably going to crack there. And we just kept marching towards it. And it's a funny thing about not listening to the little voice in your head. That's something, that's another podcast that would be awesome. The little voice uh, in our head? Yeah, I think they have that. Yeah, the little voice in that primal lizard brain that we should listen to all the time. Anyways, go out to this rib. Rib cracked out like 
10 meters in front of me and five meters behind me. And before I knew it, I was in the washing machine and it's light, it's dark, it's light, it's dark. And uh, always have a good partner. I could hear Mario who, you know, very experienced, been around forever. I could hear him in my earpiece. I, I rock with, with an earpiece. I'm going through the washing machine. I was like, I see you. Okay, I got you. I still see you. Okay, I got you again. I got you again. You'll be okay. Okay, I. Okay, yeah, I see you again. <clears throat> and I went for, went for a couple hundred meters slide through this thing, and luckily I came up on the surface. And before I could like, sort of, it sets up like concrete for for starters. Anybody who has any illusions that they're going to fight their way out of snow that's set up is is crazy. They need to. Anyways, uh, before I before I was, uh, you know, even sort of knew it, I'd come to a stop. Um, my partner was there. And he was helping me. And uh, yeah, anybody, anybody on in, in patrol, it would make a superhuman effort to to you know save their partner, save save a team member. Mario is basically the Hulk. He's he's a giant French Canadian guy, so it's good to know that the Hulk was there to just sort of grab me and shake me off. So, uh, I yeah, I have a huge respect for the environment that I work in. It's tremendously dynamic. It changes, you know the. The geography doesn't change, but um, it change like the the snowpack changes, uh, the conditions change, your attitude changes, you know, um, temperatures change. So it's constant scene size up, just like just like on the fire ground or any rescue. Like head on a swivel. Do not assume that everything is going to be the same as the last time you checked. So yeah. Yeah, and very, for people that are in the backcountry and recreating in the snow in the winter, what do yeah. you suggest they take? Oh, do do your ASC one. Um, uh, get some, get a bit of formal education. Um, the the gear that you buy, you know, online and and at an MEC, or you can be all tricked out, you can be all decked out, but if you haven't trained with it, it it's going to be essentially useless because when the moment comes that you have to do something you're going to want to rely on muscle memory and, and your training because the, the panic and the stress comes in and, you know, like you, 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 you've seen it all the time with, with other people, they'll just go into the black and, uh, and your situational awareness is nothing. So, um, don't be afraid to spend money on, uh, on, on good rescue gear when you need it, you're really going to need it. Uh, but more importantly, don't be afraid to spend money on your education and uh, um, knowledge. You know, go out there. If you've never been out there, take a course, go out with a guide. Um, don't, if you're going out there, don't just trust that the person out there in front of you uh, knows what they're doing. You know, people following other people's tracks. I've, you know, been on hundreds, not hundreds. I've been on many searches where it's like, oh, I was just following tracks. Um, and they followed tracks right, you know, right to a 200 foot cliff band. And that was the end of their day. So yeah, education is power. Right on. Well, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate you doing this. Oh, Mark, this is great. I hope we can do it again. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we'll get you back. Got to, got to get down to the office and, uh, and hang out with you guys and do some more stuff, stuff and things, as they say. There you go. Sounds good. Mark, thanks very much, man. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, to all our listeners, uh, keep listening. Uh, Mark's always got some something interesting cooked up. There you go. Thanks.